Father, thank you for your word. Just thinking as I stood up here, Lord, what an incredible privilege and awesome thing it is to open the Bible so freely. And if we're not careful, Father, we can miss the magnitude of what we're doing here. Because this is not like any other book. This is the living, inspired, authoritative, inerrant word of God. And we don't want to come with this attitude of like, we'll pick what we want and leave what we don't. Lord, we want to let your word have free reign in our hearts. And as one of my sisters prayed earlier before, God, that the soil of our heart would be soft, that the seed of the word would get planted in there and then eventually bear fruit. Lord, give, give the word legs and hands to us tonight, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, Exodus chapter 34 a couple weeks ago when we were together, um, we left Moses in a pretty dramatic scene. If you guys remember, Moses had been interceding for the children of Israel who had been rebellious. And uh, God had been answering Moses' prayers, just worthy of a lot of study looking at that beautiful section. But then Moses like prays this pretty bold prayer. He, he asked God, he says, God, please show me your glory. And what, what Moses was asking was, God, I want to see you. I want to see you in, in your unedited form, if you would. I want to just the full brunt of who you are. And God graciously like, said yes and no. Like I'm going to do that, but Moses, you need to understand something. If I revealed my full glory to you, you couldn't live because no one can see God and be alive. And it just speaks of the glorious magnitude of our God. But that's what we looked at this last time because God said, what I will do is I'll let my goodness pass before you. I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock we found out was a picture of Jesus. And I'm going to let my goodness pass by you, and I'm going to go by you and proclaim my name. So in the first part of chapter 34, verses 1 through 9, that's what we were looking at as God was proclaiming his name, and name equals nature. Who God is is in his name, and we spent some time on that. Probably not enough. We could spend months on it, all eternity on it, really, but got to move on. But it switches gears a little bit because Moses is back up onto the mountain, Mount Sinai, getting a fresh copy of the Ten Commandments. And what we have in verses 10 through 28 is pretty much God revisiting some of the stipulations from the law. All this will sound familiar if you've been with us in the Exodus study. He doesn't go into great detail. It's as if he just kind of hits some key points that he wants to remind Moses. And then when we get to chapter, or excuse me, verse 29, Moses is going to actually come down off the mountain and this very unique scene that happens, and we'll get to that hopefully. Let's go ahead and jump in at verse 10. Again, this is God revisiting the law uh, with Moses on Mount Sinai. Um, I'm going to switch this here real quick. Verse 10. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels or wonders something extraordinary, such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Verse 11, observe what I command you this day. And I believe the first part of verse 11 really goes with um, verse 10. Before he gets into stuff, this is, I've been kind of chewing on this verse a little bit. It's, it's an interesting verse. Before he gets into what he's going to do, God says something that is easy to kind of miss and just gloss over here. He says, Moses, 
I'm going to do marvels in you and among you and through you that has never been done before. I am about to do something so awesome in you and through you, and what's going to happen is all the nations around you are going to see my glory, and the idea is are going to glorify me. And then he says, so observe what I tell you to do. And I just love that verse, you guys. You know, in the context of Israel, God really was. God was doing something new, something different. God was performing miracles and wonders through the Jewish people that had never been seen and never has been seen since in any other nation. And the whole idea was that it would be this light to the rest of the world that everybody else would look in and see, my goodness, who is this God, the God of the Jews? And he wanted to do something awesome. But the stipulation was there in verse 11, what? Observe what I tell you to do. Obey what I tell you to do. And, and just kind of to flip it over to a personal application, I believe in any life, in any church body, and in the church as a whole. God has a plan and wants to do something marvelous and extraordinary and wonderful in you, in me, in our church, in the church, through our church. Do you guys understand what I'm saying? God wants, God's got big plans. He says, I'm up to stuff. I'm doing things, Moses, you don't even understand. I've got awesome plans. And what did it all hinge on? Obedience. But observe what I tell you to do today. And what was true of Moses and Israel is very true in a spiritual sense for us. Listen, guys, never underestimate obedience. Never underestimate the power and the ripple effect of simple obedience. See, that's what all this hinged on. He's basically saying, if you'll do what I tell you and you'll obey what I say, uh, trust me, I'm going to do amazing things. But vice versa, what would undo uh, what God wanted to do was disobedience. Just like we should never underestimate the power of simple obedience, we should never us underestimate the destructive power of disobedience. Does that make sense? Disobedience shorts, short circuits what God is wanting to do in our lives. It short circuited what God wanted to do through them, and it short circuits what God wants to do through us. Amen? Now, this is challenging because, you know, I was thinking about this. Obedience takes faith. You know, we say, okay, God's got an awesome plan, wants to do awesome things in me and through me, but he's asked me to obey these things. And quite honestly, what's the big deal? Like, why do I have to obey this and, you know, not do those things or do those certain things? I don't see why that is such a big deal. And, and I, quite frankly, don't understand. And God is basically saying, trust me. You have to trust me. Follow my laws, he would say to Israel, and do what I say, he would say to us. You know, think about some of the things that God asks us to do. To stay pure sexually. To um, not gossip. To do little, you know, little things, big things. And it's very simple for us to say, but God, I don't really understand why that plays into the big scheme of things. And what he would say is, trust me. If you obey me, I'm going to do these things. But if you'll disobey me in the little things, it's going to short-circuit the great things that I want to do in your life. Amen? Don't short-circuit what God wants to do in your life. Don't short-circuit it. Obey him. Walk in his ways. And if you've been disobedient, repent. Just change your mind. Repent and get back on track with God. Amen? But all that to say is God was saying, I want to do great things in you. I want to do great things through you. 
but the hinge is going to be whether you obey me or not. And then in verses 11 through um, 16, he revisits this idea of what's going to happen when they go into the land. And there's some great, not new, but good for us to hear again spiritual truth tucked in here. He says, Behold, um, I will drive out before you the Ammonites and the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. He says in verse 11, when you go into the land, and just remember, guys, real quick, God had promised to take them out of Egypt into the land of promise that he gave to Abraham. And I don't want to get into sidetrack on all of it, but the point is, is that when they got there, it was a land of blessing, of flowing with milk and honey is how he put it. But what did they have to do when they got there? They had to dispossess the nations that were there. There was going to be a battle. He wanted to exterminate those people. A lot of people are quick to call God's mercy, God's fairness into judgment on that. It's a side issue. But suffice it to say, God had given these people hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years to repent. And now he's using Israel as the tool in his hand to judge these nations. But that aside, he says, go into the land. I'm going to give it to you. Now, this is what he says. Here's the focus of what he, he wants to bring out in this this time he mentions it. Verse 12. But take care. One translation says, be very careful, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you are going, and it becomes a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars, break down their pillars, cut down their asherim, for you shall worship no other god for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Verse 15. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when you whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you're invited to eat uh, of the sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. That's heavy. <laughs> What's he saying? He says, I'm going to go into the land. I'm going to help you expel the nations. But then he gives them a warning. He says, but be very, very careful. When you go into the land, make sure, guys, you absolutely obliterate them and you obliterate all of their um, idols, all of their ways of worship. Don't get fascinated with their ways of idolatry. See, God knew something. God knew that it would be a temptation for his people when they went into the land to be enamored with the way that these people were worshiping and their culture and their sacrifices. And he knew it would be a temptation for them to not annihilate them and tear those things down, but to make a covenant with them. And he says, don't you dare do that. And then he gives the reason. He says, it will be a snare to you. Did you guys catch that? It's going to be a snare to you. The word snare there literally means bait or a lure. It means there's a hook in it. That's what it means. You know, I didn't grow up fishing. I, I grew up in the burbs, you know, in Southern California. I did a little fishing at Lake Nacimiento and Lake Casitas, if you guys are familiar with that area of Southern California. But, I mean, I can count on one hand the times I went fishing. And it was always gross to me, hooking a little worm, throwing it in, and there's a bobber, and it was just, you know, that was my vision of fishing. And then I come here, and I, some of you guys, you know, you go out ahi fishing, and I look at some of the lures, and they're like these big, they're like so huge and flowy and glittery. 
and they have the biggest, gnarliest hook you've ever seen hiding on the inside. I mean, I'm no ahi. I don't know what goes to an ahi's mind, but I'm thinking that looks sparkly and good. I won't put that in my mouth. And then it's hooked. And that's what he was saying to Israel. He's saying, I know it looks sparkly. I know it glitters as it's going across your eye, across your vision. I know you're going to want to grab onto that, but I'm telling you, there is a hook in it. And by the way, as an aside, anytime God warns us about sin, it's never because he just doesn't want us to have fun. Did you know that? It's not because he's just a stick in the mud and he's old and doesn't like us to enjoy ourselves. Do you know the actual, the opposite of that is true? Do you know what God wants the actual very best for us? He wants to us, to us to enjoy life the way it was ultimately created to be. They have the ultimate joy and the ultimate fulfillment in whatever realm you're talking about, whether it's um, just, you know, in, enjoying nature, enjoying uh, you know, sexual relationship with your wife, enjoy all this. So when he prohibits things and he says, don't do this and do, do, do that, it's never to put boundaries in a sense to, to keep us from having fun or keep us from enjoying things. It's actually so that we will enjoy it the most. Does that make sense? So when he says, don't do that, why is he saying it? There's a hook in it. How many of you guys have found out the things of this world, they look shiny, there's a hook in it? And you take a bite, and you grab it, and before you know it, you can't get off the hook. You played the fool. You got suckered. And it's happened to every single one of us. And he says, guys, be careful. Don't do that. Don't make a covenant with them. The key to their success and their ultimate enjoyment of the land was to obliterate, not make a covenant with the people and their ways of doing things. And by the way, did you catch, I kind of said it on purpose, did you catch how God viewed them going after other gods? He called it whoring. I don't know about you, but that word's kind of offensive to me. <laughs> I mean, that's not something you use in polite conversation. God throws it out there like four times. He's like, this is how I feel about them going after other gods. You're whoring. You're a spiritual whore. That's how personal God takes it. Now, before we move on from this, you guys know this, but it's worthy of just visiting again. There's a spiritual application to this. You know, by the way, the history of Israel, when they went into the land under Joshua, they initially went in, divided, and conquered the land. They broke the back of the Canaanite people. It took them about seven years, and they basically got major victories along the way. After those seven years, there was pockets of all these other people groups all throughout the land, and the commandment basically uh, from God through Joshua was now divide up into your tribes and go and dispossess all of them. Get rid of every little pocket of resistance. And the same thing is true in our Christian experience. When you got saved and the Holy Spirit came into your life, there were some radical battles that were run, won right off the get-go. Amen? Yes or no? Some of those glaring, gnarly sins that dominated your life, when you first got saved, boom, God just helped rip those things out. But you know what? Years go by and time goes by. And how many of us have found out that even after 10, 20, 30 years of walking with the Lord, there's still pockets of resistance. There's areas of our flesh, our old nature, that have yet to be conquered. And what God is saying is make sure to them, he said, don't make a covenant, kill them. 
deal severely with them. And guys, the spiritual truth is this. We are never to make deals with our flesh. God never intended for us to manage our sin. I think Isaiah taught on that a few weeks back in Kings. We think we can, and that's what they did in their history. They, well, we won't annihilate them. We'll just tax them or we'll, we'll make them their, our slaves. The problem in a spiritual sense is that sin will not be held down. It will not coexist with you, allowing you to rule over it. It will want to rule over you. That's just the way it is. Anybody ever frustrated that you've been walking with the Lord a long time and you find out you've got this one or two areas of sin that rears its ugly head all the time? Anyone besides me? And you have this thought that goes through your head, I've been saved for 20, 30 years now. Shouldn't I be past this by now? Anyone ever struggle with that? Okay, can I remind you of something? Your flesh never gets better. God is not interested in reforming your flesh. He is not working with our old fleshy nature. What has he done? Given us a new nature. And what he deals with us, he's dealing, he's dealing with our new nature. We are to absolutely put our old nature to death and just live in the new nature. And so when my old nature pops up its ugly head, A, I shouldn't be surprised. But B, I shouldn't entertain it either. Romans 6, by the way, is the, the passage you want to go to on this. It's the, just a, an absolute game changer when it talks about Christ dying on the cross and breaking the power of sin in our lives that we no longer have to live dominated by our old nature, that we can walk in the newness of life in Christ. Amen? But having said that, the reality is we all struggle with that old man, that old man, that old man. And God would say, Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, put the old man to death. Romans 8, 13, by the Spirit, slay or put the old man or the old nature to death. If you let it live, if you make a deal, and you, and you start thinking, well, I've always thought this way, I've always struggled with this sin, and I've tried to get rid of it, so maybe I'll just kind of manage it, or it's just the way I'm going to be. Don't do that. You've got to kill it. I've tried killing it. I can't kill it. Do you know what the key to killing your flesh and killing your sin is? It's to absolutely starve it to death. Do you neglect it? The problem we have, the mistake that we make is we think, oh, I've got this glaring sin. I've got this thing I've got to get rid of, so I'll work on that, and I'll, once I get that handled, I can really walk closer to Jesus. But the Reality is, it's flip-flopped. Jesus, or the Bible says in Romans, excuse me, Galatians 5.16, walk in the Spirit and you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. The key is just walk with Jesus and you won't fulfill that area of the flesh. Amen? You know, I heard this along the way somewhere. It takes a passion to dominate another passion. You've got these passions. I have these passions, these lusts of our flesh, these, these appetites of the flesh. And you know how to dominate those things? With a greater passion. And the greater passion is our passion for Jesus. Our love for Jesus. You're not going to have victory over that thing by hating it a whole lot. Yes, you should hate it, but you need to love Him more. When you just turn your focus to Him and fill your life with Him, you starve that thing to death. Amen? Maybe you failed this week. Maybe you're like, man, I've given in to the flesh. I've failed. Can I encourage you? Confess it. Own it. Tell God you did it. Don't make excuses for it. 
but receive forgiveness and grace and look now to Jesus and don't think for one second you can't walk close to Christ, that you've somehow got to like go through penance for a couple weeks and then once you've done that, you can walk close to Christ. Confess it, be free, and just start walking with Jesus again. Amen? Well, he says when you get into the land, tear it down. It, the old saying is this, basically, if you don't deal severely with your sin, your sin will deal severely with you. You can't make covenants. You can't manage your sin. You have to kill it. And it's a work of the Spirit as you walk with Jesus. Well, verse 17, he says, you shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. Verse 18, he says, you shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month of Abib. From the month of Abib you came out of from Egypt and all the um, that opened the womb are mine. All your male livestock, the firstborn cow and sheep, the firstborn of a donkey, you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem and none shall appear before me empty-handed. These are things we've covered in the past. You can go to Exodus chapter 13, Exodus chapter 23, but this is throwing us back to the Passover. Unleavened bread and the feast of Passover are linked. Again, you guys remember the Passover, the last plague was the firstborn of every household died unless they took a lamb, slayed it, applied the blood. Do you guys remember that? Yes or no? In fact, God told Pharaoh through Moses, he said, look, Israel's my firstborn son. Let my son go. If you don't, I'm going to slay your firstborn son. And that's exactly what he did. But the whole point here is that um, the firstborn, whether it was livestock or people, um, belonged to God. So if they wanted to keep that animal, they had to uh, redeem it with a lamb. And if they didn't want to redeem it and they didn't want to spend the money on a lamb to keep their donkey or whatever, then they couldn't keep it. They had to break its neck and kill it. Notice he doesn't give that option for the sons. He's like, yeah, you actually have to redeem your kids. You can't break their necks. Anyway, though you may want to at times. Um, and then he, I love this little phrase, you shall not appear before me empty-handed. That's a loaded, I love that. Because he's talking about going to the feast, going to the celebrations, and he says, when you come, don't come empty-handed. I just, I love little verses like that. To me, those are keys on how to come to church. How to come to times of worship. Don't come empty-handed. I know we come, and I, am, I do too, and we should come with needs. Needing to hear from God. Need, needing to be filled and blessed. That's good. That's right. But can I remind us that when we gather together to worship, we're not just coming to get. We actually should come to give as well. To give God praise. I love where the Psalms talk about giving God his due, which is not burnt offerings and sacrifices. It's thanksgiving and praise. Amen? And we talk about this a lot. I mention this application a lot because I think it's a game changer on how you really get the most out of church and how you do it right. Come ready to worship. Don't wait till you feel like worshiping. Don't come empty-handed. Come and say, God, I'm going to give you praise. I'm going to give you thanks. Well, I don't really like this song. Suck it up and sing it anyway. And sing it louder. 
knowing that God knows you don't like that song, it will then be counted as a sacrifice of praise because it costs you something, right? Sing it anyway. And here's the thing. It's the old thing that Jesus said, that principle that where your treasure is, your heart will follow. So when you just decide to worship and decide to give and you give your money and you give your praise and you give your service and you give your time, God gives back. We don't do it necessarily for that, but he does. All of a sudden you find yourself full and enjoying God's presence and the things that were bugging you have gone aside and you're out of your stupid little mood and your grumpiness and you're able to just enter in. Amen? Don't come to church empty-handed. Come ready to give what God wants, and that is thanks and praise. Well, then it goes on to say, um, six days you should, this is great, I love this. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. So now God is, again, this isn't new. Um, these are things, uh, stipulations, regulations that God has touched on. He's, and he's referring to what? The Sabbath. And he's saying, you know, work six days, but on the seventh day rest. Take a Sabbath. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. You shall observe um, the Feast of Weeks and the first fruits of wheat harvest and the Feast of Ingathering at the year's end. Look at verse 23. Three times in a year you sh your males shall appear before the Lord your God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out nations before you, enlarge your borders, and no one will covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in a year. Now, I just want to mention this. I, I, I like this. The, the clear application is this. God is just saying, guys, to the Jews, observe the Sabbath, work six days, take the seventh off, and rest. And then not only the Sabbath, he mentions the feast. Specifically here, the three biggies, Passover, um, which is unleavened bread, um, Pentecost, or weeks, and booths, or tabernacles. And they were all kind of centered around the agricultural calendar. He says, look, each one of those takes a week to celebrate. So no matter where you live in that region, you stop your work, you come to these things. Which, by the way, if the celebration's a week and you got to factor in travel time, now you're looking at like a week and a half, maybe two weeks of taking time. But God was saying, look, this is a priority. Work six days and I command you, rest. I order you. Rest. And notice what he says. In harvest time and in plowing time. We're in plowing time first and in harvest time and during the feast. Here's why I like this section and the way he puts it this way or this time. He reminds them to keep the Sabbath, commands them really, reminds them, commands them really to go to the feasts, and then he takes away all of their excuses not to go. Do you catch that? I order you to rest during plowing time and the harvest. Because what's the natural tendency? Oh, I, I would take a day off, but it's plowing time. Like there's only a short little window here that we can get the, the fields, you know, plowed up and get the seed in there, and it's real crucial. I don't know if I can take a day off. God says, take your day off even in plowing time. Well, I would, but it's harvest time, and you got to make hay while the sun shines, and we got to get out there, and there's work to do. And he says, even in the harvest time. I would go to the feast, God, but it's taking two weeks off work. And by the way, what about all the women and children? You ever thought about that? If God orders all the men to go, that means all the women and children and elderly are left behind 
and all the guys are down in Jerusalem worshiping, who's going to protect them? What if the other nations say, hey, this is the time to strike? God already thought of that. He said, not only am I going to protect you, I'm going to enlarge your borders. No one's going to covet your land. Just go. Just takes all their excuses away. I think that this might be a word for some of us tonight. We are not under the law. As believers in Jesus, we are not held under the stipulations of the law. We don't have to keep the Sabbath in the same way and all of those things. But the principle was what? Prioritize time to rest. Not just rest physically, but spiritually. To be in my presence. To stop working and just sit and enjoy me and be with me and be with your family and come remember the things I've done for you and celebrate. Make that a non-negotiable and a priority in your life. And what do we say? I would, but my job, but my work. Now I understand sometimes you have no control over your schedule and you just got to do what your boss says. And obviously that's true and I get that. But if we're being honest, and I think I can speak especially to the men there's many times where we absolutely could get off early or not go in that day and we choose to work when God says, no, I want you to rest. How many guys are guilty of grinding, grinding, grinding? Listen, let me say this. It is a noble thing, men, to work and to work hard and provide for your family. But it is not a noble thing to do it to an extent where you sacrifice the spiritual health of your family. And how many men do, and don't get their families to church and they use the excuse because it's easier and better for you to just work and, and where you could just say, I, don't want, I need to go you know, prioritize spiritual things, where you're just lacking a heart of spiritual things and you're fooling yourself thinking that it's some noble thing to just work, 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 when God is saying, no, the noble thing is to do what I say and prioritize sitting at my feet. Yes, work. Of course, work. Paul says later, unless you work, you shouldn't eat. But don't do it to the extent where you neglect spiritual rest. Amen. Get rid of your excuses. Get rid of all the stuff. And the funny thing is the ones that really need to hear it aren't here tonight. They're working. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with work. You know, I, I, I think I've made that very clear. We come up with all the excuses in the world because, listen, it's easier to be busy than it is to sit still. We don't know how to sit still. We don't know how to put our phone down. We don't know how to close the computer screen. We don't know how to just be still without stimulation and just be quiet in God's presence. He says, I want you to do that. And maybe that's a word, maybe that's a little kick in the, the rump for some of us to get back to that. Well, anyways, let's keep moving. Uh, for the record, worship ended at 5 to 7, so I've got plenty of time. He says, um, verse 25, you shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened. Leaven was um, a type of sin. Or let the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover remain until morning again. He talked about that in, verse, in chapter 13. And I like verse 26. He says, The best of the fruit of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God, and you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. 
Um, we'll save the mother's milk goat thing. Uh, we've talked about that. I, I do want to just mention verse 26. He says, bring the best of your first fruits of your ground. You know, from tip to tail in the word of God, there's this idea of bringing your first and your best to God. You know, sometimes we get all edgy about, well, should we tithe or should we not tithe or this or that? You know what? Here's the, the, the overall idea. As an act of worship, bring your first and your best to God. Doesn't he, does God deserve our first and our best? I love how Pastor Steve put it, to, you know, on Sunday in First in Corinthians, how everything we have, is a gift from God. Everything we have is a gift from God. How stupid is it for us to hold back, say, well, I'll just kind of tip God as the basket goes by, you know, or you know, I don't know if he, he did me really well this week. I don't know if I'm going to give 10%, maybe 9%, you know, like, like he's a waiter or something. He's the God of the universe who spoke everything that you see on this beautiful island into existence. He owns everything. He owns you. All that we have is his. Does he not deserve not just the first and best of our finances and our substance, but what about the first and the best of our time? When we wake up in the morning, the first and the best of our energy. What if we gave God the, the first and the best of, us, of ourselves when we woke up in the morning? We got down on our knees and said, Lord, I'm going to worship you and just be with you and, and spend time with you and just give you my whatever, however you want to apply that. He's worthy of it. Verse 27, And the Lord said to Moses, Write these words for uh, accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. Now, verse 28. Now, we're going to start shifting gears. Look at this. So he was with the Lord. I love that phrase. Hold on to that. Forty days and forty nights. He neither ate bread or drank water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. So he was on the mountain with God for 40 days and nights without eating food or drinking water. By the way, that's kind of a miracle. Like when you don't, like, I think I'm going to fast. I think I'll go 40 days or 40 and 40 nights without food and water. You will die, actually. Um, you need water um, at the very least. But the idea was he was in the presence of God, and those things didn't even come into his mind, and he was just being sustained. Now, I want to talk about this last section because it's so awesome and unique. Something very interesting happens at the end of the 40 days when Moses comes off the mountain. Look at verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone or radiated because he had been talking with God. Another operative phrase. And Aaron and all the people, when they saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them. And Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterwards, all the people of Israel came uh, near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. Now, when Moses finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Verse 34, when Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and, the people, uh, and, and told the people of Israel what he had commanded, the people of Israel would set their faces to Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. This is such a trip. 
Try to imagine what this is like. Moses comes off the mountain. He's got the fresh new copy. He probably didn't have a little swag like this when he came down, but um, he has the fresh copy of the Ten Commandments underneath his arm, whatever he comes down. And he's like, guys, I'm back. And they're like, and they're like running away. He's like, what? What? His face is literally radiating, like glowing. Theologians, Bible scholars, refer to this as moglo. That's not true. Nobody calls it that. But he's got moglo. He comes off the thing. Everybody's freaking out. Eventually, somebody must have told him, dude, look at the mirror. What is the matter? Your face is going. And he's like, what in the? And the people are freaking out. And then finally, he's like, guys, just come over here. Let me tell you what God said. And he talks to them. And finally, you know, you can almost see the people like kind of like barely, you know, kind of scooching up to him. And, he, and then something interesting. He puts a veil over his head. And then what I like, from that point on, whenever, God, when he, whenever he would go to talk to God in the tent of meeting, he'd take the veil off, talk to God, go out to the people with this, you know, face glowing, and then mysteriously put the veil back on. Now, here's what's fascinating about this. We had to wait 1,500 years to get a commentary on this. Paul actually talks about this in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It's a long section. I won't read it all, but um, write it down so you can look at it later. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 7 to the end of the chapter, he references this, and I'll just read part of it, picking up in verse 12. He says, since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened for to this day. When they read the Old Covenant, that veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read or the law is read, a veil is over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Somebody say amen. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. There is a ton there, but this is what I want to bring out. Paul comments on why Moses put a veil over his head. If we didn't have this, we would kind of think that Moses was just being super humble, like, I'm glowing and I don't want you guys to be able to freak down, so I'm going to cover it up. Here's actually why he put the veil over his head. He didn't want the people to see that the glow was diminishing. Now, the theological implications of this, when you go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul is saying that that glow that's diminishing is typical of the Old Testament. In other words, he, he's comparing the Old Testament and the New Testament. He says that the Old Testament came with glory, referring to that, but the glory was fading. The idea was the Old Testament would give way to the New Covenant that was much more glorious. And that's what he was talking about in that section um, contextually. And then he uses that veil to talk about how, kind of metaphorically, how there's a veil over the hearts of the Jewish people. When they hear the law, they just don't see the truth. But when Jesus comes into their life, the veil is taken away, and we can behold him. And as we behold him, we're transformed to become like him. It's a great section. But it's almost kind of humorous. Like, 
at some point, Moses realized the glow is diminishing. What's, what's he do? He recharges. Like any glow-in-the-dark toy that you've ever owned. You hold it up to, you get on a ladder on your bed, and you hold it up to the light. Quick, 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 turn off the lights. And then it's like super glowing green. You're like, yeah, but then it fades. Like, hold it back up to the light. That's what Moses was doing with his face. He would go before God and just like, as he's in God's presence, the glow would just emanate. You see, the application for us is this, you guys. We've got a glow about us, but it's not an outward kind of glow. It's a glow that comes from the inside out. See, the verse 18 of that section I read to you is such a great verse. It's memorizable. It's a good one. I don't have it memorized, but you should. Um, let me read it again. It says this. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree to another. Guys, just like Moses was with God, and that's the key phrase. I pointed it out a couple times. He was 40 days talking with God. When he would go to, into the tent, he would be with God, quote-unquote. He would talk with God. When he was with God, he was glowing. And guys, for us, in the new covenant, listen, we can, with unveiled faces, just come into the presence of God. We can be with the Lord anytime we want to. Amen? And when we do, there's two things that happen. To the degree that I will behold him, that is to be with him, I will shine like him and I will become like him. You know, we talk about shining for the Lord or letting our light shine. Jesus said, you're the light of the world. And we, we, we sometimes say, Lord, I want to shine at my job or shine at, at, at school or on the, on the you know, court or wherever you're, whatever you're doing in life. How do I shine for the Lord? Here's how you do it. Be with him. Go spend time with God. And you know what? You don't have to try to shine. You just do. Amen? You know what? Moses, I love that. He didn't even know he was shining. But he was. Why? He'd been with the Lord. Doesn't that remind you of Acts chapter 4 when John and, and Peter are arrested and, and they like are super bold in front of their, the, the, the authorities and they let him go and there's that little comment in verse 13 that says something like, they took note that they were uneducated, ignorant men, but they, they, they took note that they had been with Jesus. There was something about him that just exuded Jesus because they'd been with him. You want to shine at work tomorrow? You want to let your light shine at school? Be with him. You want to be more like Jesus? Be with him. Quickly, back to that 2 Corinthians 3.18 verse. It says, as we behold him with unveiled faces, as we behold his glory, we are transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the next. The word transform there is metamorpho in the Greek, and it's the word metamorphosize. It's what a caterpillar does. A caterpillar, all ugly little cocoon, but something's happening in there. Over time, it metamorphosizes into this beautiful butterfly. You know, so often, I, I, I kind of said it earlier, I actually prayed this today. I just thought about it. I've known the Lord for 36 years. And sometimes I get really bummed. Because I'm like, God, I have known you for so long. I 
should know you so much better than I do. I, sh- I should be more in love with you than I am. I should be further along in my knowledge of the scripture. I should be more, b- and I almost lament it sometimes, but you know what the key is? To the degree that I'm with him will be to the degree that I just become like him. It's not me trying to change myself. It's just being transformed into his image because I'm just with him. And we will become like what we behold. If we behold Jesus, we'll become like Jesus. If we behold Netflix, we'll become, you know what I mean? Like whatever we just spend all of our time beholding, that's kind of what we start reflecting. If you want to shine for the Lord, be with him. If you want to be transformed to be like the Lord, behold him. Be with him. Be with him. I'm done, but I want to say this. I'm done, but then I give it a qualifying that says I'm not done. Um, Be with him. Don't settle for devotions. Don't settle, you know, we get these little things that come and do a one-minute quick Bible reading. Those are great if that's all you got. Read the Bible. Yes, do those things. But I, I think we should rebel against settling for just doing our devotions. You know what I mean by that? Are you saying we shouldn't read our Bibles? No, read your Bibles. But if you're like me, I, I have my comfy little spot and it's good. I get up in the early in the morning and I sit there and I have my cup of coffee and I read and I treasure those moments. I, I, I love those times. But if I'm not careful, I can just kind of read some verses like I always do and drink my coffee and go. I did my devotions. I spent time with the Lord. You can do your devotions and not be with the Lord. Do you understand that? And sometimes i got to kick myself, and so do you, where we need to say, you know what, I'm not going to just settle for just methodically reading a verse. And please don't misunderstand me. There's times where it's just good to be disciplined and read and do that. Of course, yes. But sometimes I think we just settle for this mechanism instead of actually spending time with the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, and shaking it up a little bit and singing a song to him or, or just saying, you know what, I'm, getting, I'm falling asleep. I need to get on my face and pray out loud and stir myself up and talk to him and say, Lord, talk to me or break away or get up early or stay up late and just go be with him. Amen? And it's in those times where I'm just beholding him in the word and spending time with him, talking and listening and worshiping and praying that I come out of times like that glowing and I don't even know it, more like Christ and I don't even realize it. You can't fake this. You cannot fake this. You either glow or you don't. You're either becoming more like him or you're not. And all of us can tell when we're not spending time with the Lord. Because you, you can parent, you can work, you can minister, you can do those things, you can go through the motions, but when you've spent time with the Lord, it's obvious. You can be a preacher, preach a sermon, but then you see a preacher who's been with the Lord. And that sermon's more alive, isn't it? Worship leader can do worship, but when that guy's been with the Lord, he may screw up a few chords, it doesn't matter, because there's something about, he's glowing. You can be a husband, be a wife, but man, a husband and a wife who's been with the Lord, a mom or dad that's been with the Lord, and you can't fake it. There's only one way, and it's to be with Him. Then you shine and you become more like Him. Amen? I hope that's encouraging to you. This is equal opportunity blessing here. This isn't for like super Christians that have a special spiritual gene. 
This is for all of us. All of us can go spend time with God and have Moglo all week long if we want to. Amen? Let's stand together. Father, we thank you so much for your word, and it never fails. Every time I teach it, I feel like I probably should have said this or not said that, but Lord, I thank you that your word speaks for itself. Lord, thank you that you've removed the veil and that we can just come before you. And I want to pray, God, that you would apply every bit of the things we've said by your spirit into our lives tonight. Jesus, I pray you would help us to shake ourselves free from just going through the motions. Lord, that we would spend time with you. You'd rekindle our prayer times, rekindle our, our, our times in the word and our worship times. We love you. We want to shine for you and we want to be more like you. So Lord, help us to be with you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.